0: Well, good, evening. good evening. Welcome everyone. Thank you for coming tonight. As we study the word together, uh, let's bow before the Lord and ask him to bless our time of study tonight. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for the love that you have shown to us. Lord, we are unworthy of all the grace and the compassion that you have demonstrated toward us in Christ. We thank you, Father, that we can gather together tonight, that we can assemble as your people, that we can meet together as the family of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we can fellowship together around the unity that we share in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. And uh, Father, I pray that you would bless our time. uh, Lord, as we open your word and we uh, seek to understand the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, that Father, you would give us insight and understanding uh, help us to not just learn it, but to put it into practice in our lives and uh, seek to uh, live in the fear and awe of you. Lord, we pray that you would bless our time of prayer, that as we bring our concerns and our requests to you, that Father, we would do so uh, with uh, a focus on your glory and your honor and uh, Lord, that we would seek to pray in line with your will. Lord bless your t- bless this time and may you be glorified and exalted in it. And We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, tonight, as we continue our study of Ecclesiastes, we're in Chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes. And tonight we're looking at verses 8 through 20. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is focusing on three different frustrating or enigmatic things that he sees in the world. And remember that the key term for all of Ecclesiastes is this term Hevel. It's a Hebrew term, and it's really hard to translate into with one English word. But it's the idea of that which is mysterious, enigmatic, puzzling, uh, at times frustrating, futile. And as a part of his quest to find gain, to find profit, to find this Hebrew term Yitron, uh, verse three of chapter one, he is looking at all different aspects of life and and he's observing different areas of life and seeing where we can find this gain, this profit. One way of understanding it is meaning significance. Where can we find this in life? And so in verses eight through 20 of chapter five, he turns our attention to to three different portraits of human experience. And one of those is oppression. And so in verses eight and nine, we see the reality of oppression. In verse eight, he says, if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things for one official is eyed by a higher one and over them both are others higher still he seems to be, and this is not the first time that he's mentioned oppression in Ecclesiastes, but in this particular section, he's observing what he has seen in human experience. And that is that even in government, even in uh, under the authority of those who are supposed to uphold righteousness and justice, oftentimes we don't see that happening. We see injustice, oppression happening instead. He, he makes reference to a district uh, probably uh, like maybe what we would refer to as maybe a legislative district or a judicial district under someone's authority. And he's just pointing to the fact that it's not uncommon in our human experience for the leaders that, that either we choose in a democratic society or, the leaders that we just have, you know, in a more dictatorial or monarchial society, it's not uncommon for those leaders to be corrupt and for those leaders to play favorites for uh, those leaders to allow injustice and oppression to go on within their area of authority. So he says, don't be surprised at such things. Why not be surprised about them? Well, Kohelet, the teacher of Ecclesiastes, he's he's a realist, right? So he observes what's going on in the world and he, he sees it for what it is. And he observes that we are sinners, aren't we? We're sinners. And so not only are we sinners, but we live in a world that is affected by the curse on sin. And so we're going to find all kinds of things, that are not the way it's supposed to be. And one of those is injustice in the realm of government. And he makes a statement at the end of verse eight, he says, for one official is eyed by a higher one and over them, both are others higher still. And one commentator says this, he says, this is probably a reference to a bureaucratic hierarchy. He says not an exclusively modern phenomenon, in which rights are easily made wrong. And so we have people over other people and, and people answering to people above them and they have to do what the people above them say. And it's easy in positions of power for things to go awry, I think is his point in this verse. So don't be surprised when you see injustice. And in verse nine, he says the increase from the land is taken by all the King himself profits from the fields and uh, Old Testament Israel, as many ancient societies were, were largely agrarian. They were farming societies and not unlike what we experience today in the fruit of our labor being taken by the government, right? In taxes. So the more you make, the more the government takes, right? I mean, we experienced that in our situation and in their setting uh, it was very similar. So you produce a crop and you slice off a portion of that crop and it goes to the bureaucrats, the officials in your area. And it just goes all the way on up the food chain to the king and they each get their slice of the pie. And in light of all of that, there is bound to be injustice and corruption going on. And so he just points us to the reality of oppression and that oppression, that injustice that goes on in our world is one of the obstacles. One of the the things in the way of us finding this meaning, this gain, this profit that he's been searching for. So he points us to this inequity. Things are not the way they're supposed to be in this world. And by the way, let me just comment on here. And this is not necessarily a political statement. It's more of a theological one, but there is no system of government that we as human beings can invent that will fix this problem. So we hear a lot of talk today about justice, right? I mean, that, that word justice has probably been used more in the last year than in the last 20 years in on the media and on Facebook and social media. It's all over the place. The idea of justice and equity and, and equality, and it, it's all over. And there are different theories about how to go about achieving that. But regardless of how we try to come up with a system, whether it's more of a capitalistic system, people get what they earn, you know, personal responsibility, or whether it's more of a communistic system where people share, there is no perfect system, right? There is no perfect system. In this world, Kohelet, the the teacher, makes us aware of it. He points to reality that he wrote this 23, 24, 2500 years ago, that it's always been this way. And here's the thing, it always will. It always will until when? Until Jesus comes back, right? There will never be a perfect leader, a perfect system of government in this world until Jesus comes back. That's not to say that we shouldn't try to work toward justice and righteousness and doing that, which is right. But we're never going to get there on our own. There's never going to be a panacea right? There's never going to be a utopia that we as human beings can create. The only true peace, the true Shalom will come when Jesus comes. So we should be uh, humble in our own estimation of our ability as human beings to achieve a grand and glorious society because we can't do it. So he points to the reality of oppression. And then in verses 10 through 12, He points to the emptiness of wealth, the emptiness of wealth. He says in verse 10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. There's that word hevel. This is frustrating. This is enigmatic. This is hard to understand. So there are some people in the world, who pursue money, wealth, goods, possessions as their Yitro as their profit, as their gain, as their meaning in life. That's what they live for. And he says, but here's the problem is that if you pursue money, wealth things in a, in an effort to find satisfaction, meaning happiness, he's saying, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be disappointed because whenever you get more that human desire to accumulate more and more is never satiated, right? It's never satisfied. It never brings the satisfaction that it promises. And it's frustrating. He says in verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. In other words, the more money you get, the more mouths you have to feed. The kind of a point he's making is that it seems like the more that comes in, the more goes out. It's like there's holes in our pockets. So we keep striving for more and more and more and to earn more money and get more things. But there's also more trouble involved with all of that. And it's easy for those things to disappear. So goods increase, but so do those who consume them. And what benefit then are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? He said, well, at least there's one benefit to getting wealth and that is you can look at it. And that seems to be all they get. It seems to be the only satisfaction they get out of acquiring all that wealth is they can look at it because there's really no deeper meaning. There's really no deeper joy or happiness to it than that. You're not going to find what you're looking for in acquiring wealth through the love of money. He says in verse 12, The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. In verse 12, he seems to be arguing for a simple life that if you are just content with what you have and you're not striving, seeking for more and more and more, that you can have a sense of contentment. You can have a sense of satisfaction with a good day's work and you can sleep soundly at night content with what you've done that day and with what you have. But the problem with those who pursue wealth and those who are just, that's what they're pursuing in life is their abundance permits them. No sleep. Why? Well, seems like the more you have, the more troubles come along with it. Right? I don't have to worry about hiring a personal accountant because I don't have that much money. Right? I don't have to worry about, Uh, having an agent because I'm not that popular. I don't have to worry about hiring all these, you know, maintenance people and grounds people and, and uh, you know, chefs and all this stuff because I don't have that much money. I don't have to pay insurance on tons of luxury vehicles because I don't have that much money. So it's almost like he's saying the more and more you get along with it, comes the pressure and the anxiety and the worries of life that go along with having all of those things such that you're worried about all these things and you can't even sleep at night because you got to do this with that and you got to do this over here and this needs fixed and you have to buy this over here and your mind never stops and it keeps you from sleeping at night. You're either worried about all that you have or you're worried about the possibility of losing it and it doesn't permit you to sleep and there's no rest, but he says the sleep of a laborer is sweet. doesn't matter how much they have, whether they eat much or little, they're just content. They put in their day's work and they go to bed at night, not having to worry. Uh, I remember this has been several years back and I may even get the the name wrong, but I want to say that there was an instance of an NFL player at least I think he might've been retired or or real close to retirement, but he attempted suicide and he was depressed. And I remember his agent making some comment, uh, trying to deflect away like he didn't really commit suicide. He's not depressed. And, and made some statement about he's got 30 million reasons to not be depressed as if $30 million keeps you from being depressed or discouraged or uh, finding that your life is, doesn't have meaning. And even the radio show host that I was listening to saw through the, the ludicrous statement that that was. doesn't matter how much money you have, you can still be depressed. In fact, sometimes the more money you have, the more anxiety you have. And that seems to be what the teacher here is saying is that the more you accumulate, Sometimes it brings on more trouble and anxiety than it's worth and robs you even of your sleep and rest. So there's emptiness in wealth. So you can get it and get it and get it and acquire it, but it's never going to fill you. It's never going to satisfy you. That hole is still going to be there is the point that he's making. And then in verses 13 to 17, he talks about the futility of acquiring wealth. So, Verses 10 to 12 was more about the emptiness of it. You can have it and it's still not satisfy. But now in verses 13 through 17, he's going to remind us that you can have wealth, but you can ease just as easily quickly lose it. And it's gone. So he says in verse 13, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. And so in this section, he's reminding us of the fact that we can have money one day and the next day we don't because it can be here today and gone tomorrow. Wealth is uncertain. One commentator says this, he says, what was the rich man's problem? The very riches that he guarded so carefully vanished on account of a venture, which may have been morally questionable or simply unfortunate in its outcome. He says thus, no matter how much careful attention one gives to amassed wealth, there's never any guarantee that it cannot be lost through chance, misfortune, or through business failure. So that's the futility of it. The futility of acquiring wealth is that it doesn't last. What did Jesus say? Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures where on earth, right? Because what can happen to those treasures on earth? Rust, moths eat it up, thieves break in and steal. So it wastes away, it falls apart, it, or someone takes it away, it, it's gone. In other words, Jesus was pointing to the, the transitoriness, the short term lifespan of worldly wealth. It's not secure. You can't put your life in it. So he says, instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, because that's a treasure that cannot be robbed. It's a treasure that doesn't deteriorate or fade away. It is an eternal treasure here. The writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, if you put your life in wealth, it can be here today, but gone tomorrow. It's not going to last. He says, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. And as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. So even if you keep your wealth through your life, here's the fact of the matter. You can't take it with you when you die. It's still money that has a lifespan, doesn't it? That money has a lifespan and that lifespan is limited. It might be lost in a business venture. It might be stolen or you might take it with you all the way to the point of your death, but that's it. You can't take it with you beyond that. You can't take it into eternity. You can't take it with you into the grave. And here I'm reminded of Job one twenty-one. And he may even be quoting from that here in Job one twenty one, when Job said naked, I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. We come into this world with nothing. And how do we leave this world with nothing at both birth and death? We are penniless. One commentator says it seems that he is uh, this—he's frustrated that after all the struggle to acquire things, death comes. Death comes along and robs us of them all. It appears that all that has transpired between birth and death counts for nothing. He says this is a grievous evil as everyone comes, so they depart and what do they gain since they toil for the wind? It's like all of this life, 70 years of working. And then you don't, you can't take any of it with you. That's why there has to be a gain, a Yitron, a profit beyond this life. There has to be something that is eternal. the gain that we're seeking, the the profit, the meaning that we're seeking in this life cannot be material. It has to be something beyond that. So he says, if you put your hope in money, you're not going to find satisfaction in it for one. And it's not going to last. It's temporary. And so all their days, they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger just kind of pointing to the, all the trouble that goes on in our lives in the world, all the difficulties that we experience. So there's oppression in the world. People long for money, for wealth, and it doesn't satisfy them. People acquire money and possessions, but it actually ends up hurting them in the end, giving them more anxiety, more worries, or it's gone. People take it and, and, or a business failure, some misfortune and it's gone. So what's his advice then? What's his counsel? He gives us the salve of contentment. And I say salve or balm because it's not the final solution. It is something that can ease, the way that this world in this world full of hevel of frustration and enigmas and futility, contentment is a good way to go through this world in which there are many, many things that are not the way they're supposed to be. That's not the ultimate gain. It's not the final solution, but it is helpful. It is healing to go through life with, contentment. And so he ends on a positive note in verses 18 through 20. He says, this is what I have observed to be good that it is appropriate for a person to eat to drink and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life that God has given them for this is their lot. Sometimes the word lot communicates the idea of that just something negative maybe a better way of understanding it is this is their portion. This, this is what they've been given granted. So he says, it is good for a person to find uh, joy in eating and drinking and what God has given and to find some satisfaction in the labor that we partake under the sun during this lifespan that God has given to us. So if you're, running after wealth, you're going to be disappointed. But here's the, here's the paradox of Ecclesiastes is that you can still find some joy and some contentment and some of those same things. So he says, you can find some joy and some contentment, some satisfaction in the work that you do in the accomplishments that you create in the food and drink that you partake of in the wife or husband that God has given you, the friends that you have, there is some happiness, there's some joy, there's some satisfaction in these things. And so enjoy them in the time that we have, that God has given to us. But here's the thing. That's not where that, that, that's not your be all end all. That's not your Yitron. That's not your ultimate gain. That's not your ultimate profit. Because if you try to find your ultimate profit in your labors, you're going to be frustrated. If you try to find your ultimate profit in your accomplishments, they're going to fail. They're going to be taken away. If you try to find your ultimate contentment in in money, you're not going to be satisfied. So we can have some contentment and joy and happiness in the gifts that God gives along the way, as long as we worship and love the giver more than the gifts. And don't put our all into the gifts, into the things of this world. He says in verse number 19, moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. This is an amazing statement in that God is the one who is providentially in control of everything, isn't he, in this world. Providentially, everything that we have is from God's hand. James says in James chapter 1, every good and every perfect gift comes down from above, from God. Everything that we have is from God. Paul says in Acts 17, the very breath that we breathe is from God. So the home that we have, the car that we drive, the spouse that we have, the friends that we have, the clothes that we wear, it's all ultimately of God. He's the giver of those gifts. But he's saying something in verse 19, even more profound than that is that God is not only the one who bestows those gifts, God is also the one who graciously gives us the ability to enjoy them without turning them into a God. That's, that's what he's advocating for. I think in these closing verses in verses 18 through 20 is recognizing the gift giver God and the gifts he has given and finding some joy and contentment in those things without turning those things into our life and worshiping them, turning them into gods where they become everything that we're pursuing. That's a gift of God. He says, and here's the thing. Not everyone has that, right? Not everyone has that. There are people that have enough, but they're not content and they want more. The ability to be content and to enjoy the things that God has blessed us with. That's a gift of God. It's a gift of his grace. And those who have been granted this gift, he says, they seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. In other words, their life isn't full of worry and fret and anxiety over what's going to happen in this world or how much they have or don't have. They're just content with their God and with what God has blessed them with. And so they enjoy their meal at night, knowing that it's from God's hand. They enjoy the drink. They enjoy their family, but they always remember the giver of those things. And because they remember the giver of those things, they re- they know not to put their whole life into those things. That's not what they're worshiping. They're worshiping the giver of the gifts, not the gifts themselves, knowing that we're not going to find satisfaction in the gifts. We're going to find satisfaction in the giver of the gifts. So keep the right perspective. If we can keep the right perspective on money, and possessions, and food, and drink, and all these things. If we can keep the right perspective, we can enjoy them. But if we pursue them as our yitron, as our as our, prophet, our ultimate gain in life, we're going to be disappointed and frustrated, and we're not going to be satisfied. And so my prayer for us is that God would give us the ability to, to see the goodness in all of life around us, to see the good gifts that he has given to us and to praise God for those things and to be content and satisfied in those things and to not always be searching for more and more and more because he reminds us that when we search for more and more and more, along with it comes problems and troubles. So may we love the giver of the gifts and be satisfied with the gifts he gives us. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, thank you for this portion of Ecclesiastes that we've been able to reflect on tonight. Lord, there's a lot here that we can readily identify with. We've seen instances in our lives where we get something new and it doesn't satisfy. We get more and it doesn't really fill that hole or that desire that we had. Lord, remind us from your word that Our ultimate hope, our ultimate satisfaction is in you. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the ability to enjoy with contentment the things that you have given us in this world. Lord, may we fear you. May we fear you and keep your commandments. And Lord, may we uh, long for that which is eternal, heavenly treasure, not that which is temporary here on earth. Lord, help us as your people to be the salt and light that you've called us to be. Give us wisdom, Father, which is not only the knowledge of your word, but also the skill to know how to put it into practice in our lives. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.